0: Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. And today, I wanted to play you a conversation from the podcast It's Been a Minute. It's between NPR Sam Sanders and author Rax King, who's out with a new essay collection titled Tacky. It's both a critical examination of and a love letter to quote-unquote low culture. And... It's an unexpectedly touching interview, at least for me as a recovering snob. It's illuminating to hear them wrestle with how taste can get so entangled with class and shame. Give it a listen. First question for you, how do you define that word?
1: Uh, So I did read Susan Sontag's Notes on Camp. I I think I referenced Uh, it in one of the essays in Tacky. And uh, to me, it's a hugely foundational text about taste, specifically types of taste that people recognize as bad. But I didn't recognize my own relationship with quote unquote bad taste in Notes on Camp because she leans so heavily on this idea that camp taste means looking at something and recognizing it as bad, but finding your own private joyful experience in it anyway, like usually heavily tinged with irony. That wasn't me. You know, I'll I'll look at something (laughs) and I'll recognize that other people are telling me it's bad. I don't know that I could offer a really satisfying dictionary definition, but I could point to stuff on the street and say people are going to call that tacky, you know?
0: Mm. It's not just... Because I kind of feel like when we say tacky, it's not just like... Things that some people think are like low culture, but it's also stuff that is just extra and kind of over the top, almost in that camp definition, you know?
1: It's very close to camp, except minus that ironic detachment. That wink and
0: nod, exactly. Right, exactly.
1: There's no wink, there's no nod, there's really just shame, by and large, or the effort to dodge that shame. So to me, tackiness is sort of the, the deadbeat cousin of campiness.
0: I like that. So I want to start with one of my favorite chapters in the book. And yet another piece of evidence that suggests that, in fact, you and I are both the same person. (laughs) Uh, You have an entire chapter on the Cheesecake Factory.
1: That's right.
0: Can you recall the first time you went?
1: I would have been a a young kid. Uh, My mom and I used to go. That was like our place. It kind of still is. I still tend to make Cheesecake Factory dates with my mom when I visit D.C.,
0: what y'all's orders
1: okay so first and foremost you got to put away like two baskets of that brown bread because it's delicious and it's free appetizer wise gotta go with the avocado egg rolls i uh Mm. i just think they're perfect uh for my entree i like to get the louisiana chicken pasta i gotta set aside half of it though my instinct is always to eat the whole thing yeah. I think that a person would die if they managed to eat an entire Cheesecake Factory entree. Yeah. So I put away half of it, I take a box. And then uh-huh. I got to go with the uh, Adams Peanut Butter Fudge Ripple Cheesecake, usually to go.
0: Oh, bold, bold. Mm-hmm. So I start out with the bread, of course. Of course. Um I actually love the Cheesecake Factory uh, rendition of the Long Island Iced Tea. <laughs> Oh, absolutely.
1: It doesn't taste bad.
0: (laughs) It does not taste bad, man. Um, And then I'm going to do probably the Southwestern Egg Rolls and or the deep fried macaroni and cheese balls. Mm -hmm. Um, After that, either the miso salmon or the Jamaican black pepper shrimp, which is a banger. Mm -hmm. And then hear me out and don't get mad. I think all of the cheesecake there is a little bit too sweet. So I don't order
1: it. That's why I get the peanut butter one because it's a little bit salty.
0: Uh, okay, okay, okay. I hear you. Pro tip. I'm going to add that to my list. Pro tip. You know, people have written about how part of the draw of this restaurant chain is its uniformity. You're going to get the same kind of elevated experience everywhere you go to any one of them across the country. And I know this to be true because I've done it. But <laughs> you also write something about the appeal of the Cheesecake Factory that I hadn't thought of before. You wrote that it's, quote, fancy enough to seem classy, but silly enough to seem comfortably trashy. What exactly is that, and how does a restaurant chain get to there?
1: I mean, of course, you've been to many cheesecake factories, so you are well familiar with their signature opulence.
0: It's like fall of Roman Empire opulence.
1: It's incredible. It's like huge columns and murals on the ceilings, and it's like dim lighting, like kind of pornographic, frankly, but in a, <laughs> in a pretty way. Yeah, And, uh, of course, the, the servers all wear, like, head-to-toe white uniforms, which is not uncommon, but does, I think, elevate the place a little bit to make you feel like, oh, that I, I am being served now, if that makes yeah. sense. yeah. And uh, something about that sweet spot of it's opulent, but it's too opulent. It's got plush surroundings, but they're too plush. They're right there in that sweet spot where it is elegance, but it's also so silly because it's like a like a little kid's idea of a rich person's mansion, you know?
0: Uh, yeah. Well, and it's like, it is giving you this elevated experience at not too high of a price. None of the individual dishes are probably going to cost you more than 30 bucks, if that much, right? Yeah. And you can go there, have people wait on you in a white shirt and black tie in a big opulent dining room and not break the bank. Like who right. doesn't want that?
1: Yeah. And it's not the same as going to like a high end steakhouse where on top of all that, you're probably going to feel a little out of place. The Cheesecake Factory has no problem making me feel comfortable because it it really is for everybody. Like yeah. most people can afford to eat there on special occasions. Most people can find something that they'll like on that massive menu it's like the restaurant equivalent of casting the widest possible net.
0: Yeah. It's the Bible of menus.
1: Totally. It's got an old
0: and new testament. Like it is yeah. massive. You know, you wrote a bit about having a little guilt about going to that kind of food chain now. Why?
1: I think that uh, that guilt is really about restaurants in general. I think yeah. that, and I, I say that as somebody who spent about a decade working in restaurants, it was my, my bread and butter for a long time. And so I am more than familiar with the drudgery of the work, with Mm. the fact that it's underpaid and tends to come with no benefits. Mm. And so there's that aspect of the restaurant discomfort. And then there's the fact that it's no longer in fashion, and the way in which it's no longer in fashion does begin to feel a little tawdry and painful when you look at the conditions that would lead to something like the Cheesecake Factory becoming unpopular. That amount of food and that amount of choice of food really should not be available, like economically speaking. It shouldn't mm. be available. It shouldn't be that cheap. Like something in that supply chain is screwy. Off.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know yeah. where
1: it is. I gotta figure it's, you know, the people growing and raising the food that comes there. But I mean that's the other thing. I don't know. I'm Deliberately kept in the dark as to why something like Cheesecake Factory is able to serve so much food for such a relatively inexpensive price.
0: I found myself wondering, reading this book and getting your story, someone who has embraced tacky and lives tacky out loud and loves it, are there certain kinds of people who get to be publicly tacky more than others? For you, how much of that is informed? by all of the individual privileges that we might have or lack, you know?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, looking at someone like, say, Donald Trump or, you know, some of the Real Housewives, I think a big thing that gives permission for their aesthetic tackiness is their wealth, right? Like, top-of-the-heap wealth, Oh, yeah. Kind of buys you the ability to do whatever you want. And of course, I, you know, I don't have top of the heap wealth by any means, but I am comfortable enough and don't really have to worry about where my next meal is coming from, to the point that I can embrace ugly, tacky stuff with confidence. I think the farther you go down those various food chains, the more likely it is that somebody's desire to embrace tackiness is going to look Like they just have bad taste, full stop. I think that like the less money you have, if you are black, your tackiness is going to be met with much more hostility than if you're white like I am. You lose the right to have quote unquote bad taste if people looking at you from the outside already assume you have bad taste based on something else about you.
0: Yeah. Well, and and it feels like some people are given more of the benefit of the doubt. You know, when a rich real housewife does something incredibly tacky in the back of your head, you can kind of say, well, that's a wink and a nod. She gets what she's doing. right? Right. Like it's 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 tacky on purpose. It's just thought out. There's a plan when someone poor or someone not that does a thing that's considered tacky. You just assume inherently the worst that it is a deficiency.
1: Yeah, exactly. You assume that somebody is less aware of what they're doing the less you trust their taste and circumstances, and I think that's certainly unfair.
0: Yeah, well, and, like, wealth does not equal awareness.
1: No, it most positively does not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I do want to talk about a chapter I really, really loved, Uh, and it was the one that you wrote all about the Jersey Shore and your Mm -hmm. dad and you and y'all's relationship to that show. So you and your dad watched it together. Tell me all about how that began.
1: Oh, that's my favorite one in the book too. I came home during one winter break uh, when I first started college and uh, straight up walked into my dad's living room and he was watching Jersey Shore like transfixed with a cigarette, frozen on its way to his mouth, just totally slack-jawed. And what he was watching was Jersey Shore. In, in. Oh, no. All we need is FPC. Fist
0: pop, push up, chapstick.
1: Obviously, as soon as it was a commercial break, I was like, God, what is the big <laughs> deal with this show? And he was like, I have never seen anything like this in my life. And so from then on, that was our show. We watched it together every week during winter break. And then I was really sad because I had to go back to college, obviously. And I was afraid that because I didn't have a TV, we were going to lose this special thing that we had. But he started calling me every week after Jersey Shore was over. like
0: Thursday at 11, yeah. <laughs> Thursday
1: at 11, yeah, because it would, it would air Thursday at 10, and then there would be a repeat of that same episode Thursday at 11, so he would watch, watch the, the episode, yeah, and then, like, <laughs> annotate it for me on the phone.
0: What were those calls like?
1: Oh, my God, delightful. I was having a really hard time at college, and... Uh, just really depressed and felt pretty adrift and untethered. And those phone calls were a real lifeline to me. I mean, my dad kept me tethered to the earth.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The chapter does take a turn. Your father dies. And then after his death, you look back really fondly on the times y'all watched Jersey Shore together. And you looked back fondly on those phone calls that he would have with you, giving you the recaps of the show And, like, that reminded me of something that we all need to be reminded of a lot when we think about whether a thing is tacky or not, you know? I think that, like, that story said to me, art's only purpose isn't just to be great. It isn't just to be good. Sometimes the purpose of the art is to unite people, for instance. Like, what if Jersey Shore is worthwhile just because it brought you and your father together? And what if for that reason, it doesn't matter if it was quote unquote good or bad, it brought y'all together.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a huge aspect of art that is impossible to incorporate into criticism. Once you engage with a piece of art, you immediately develop a relationship to it, good or bad. Obviously, no critic can account for that relationship that every single person could develop with every single piece of art, but... It's there, and it's a part of how we experience it, and I think it's a part that's really easy to overlook. Like, yeah, Jersey Shore was silly and loud and any number of other things you could say about any reality show, really, but it was also really important to us in its way. I think that one big part of being able to engage with any piece of culture joyfully, regardless of what it is, is having somebody to do it with.
0: I gotta say reading your book was so affirming for me. And we always need to be given permission to enjoy the things that we enjoy because so much of the world tells us not to do that. So to your book for giving me that message and to you and to your father for doing the same, thank you. Thank you for that permission to feel the joy.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks again to my guest, writer Rax King. Her new book is called Tacky and it's out right now. You can also find Rax's podcast, Low Culture Boil, wherever you get your podcast.